Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Tis the season for stories about food. I didn't tell her, but I don't make homemade cakes. I make Duncan Hines. <laughs> I'm a cake fraud. <laughs> and if you found that odd-shaped potato, maybe it looked like a duck or maybe it looked like something else, you might get your name, your face, and the picture of the potato in the paper. And a $5 prize that would come with it. And my mother says, I just got the feeling that God was telling me to make soup. And as soon as it touched my palate, you've seen The Exorcist, I assume, right? And he takes the two boys and he stuffs them in a pickle barrel and he waits for them to die. And I'm thinking, there is nothing but woods on the right and left of us. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm Kyone Wolf. Here are five of my favorite stories about food from my storytelling show, The Mouth Off, at the Mark Twain House. That's next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. This pandemic has shuttered so many events, including a few of my own. The Mouth Off at the Mark Twain House was a storytelling show I hosted and produced for eight years until 2020. But the good news is that now I get to show off some of my favorite true stories from the series here on Audacious. The theme for this one? Eat it up. You'll hear five true stories that feature food. Food is one of those things that's really easy to tell stories about, right? Food you love, food you hate food you learned how to make better because you listened to Seasoned on Connecticut Public. I have a lot of foods I really love, like onions, and I have a lot of foods that I don't, like most fruit and all animals who came from the ocean. And I really want to like seafood so much that I'm out to dinner with a friend and she orders the salmon and they put this plate in front of her and the grill marks are perfect. There's this little moat of juices underneath it. And I'm thinking, I am primed to like this salmon. I'm going to try it. So I put my fork into it and little flakes just come right off, salivating, just telling the story. And I put the fork in my mouth and I bite down and it tastes like I've licked the side of a boulder that had been in the ocean for two millennia. In other words, not good, unless you're into that sort of thing. So I knew that when my family went to visit my big brother, Chris, in Japan, I knew I would have a hard time with the menus. So I'm eating a lot of bagels and a lot of noodles. I'm having a really hard time figuring out the chopsticks. But on the final day, my brother invites us to this restaurant, which is owned by this older couple who were sort of stand-in parental figures for him when he first got there. So it means a lot to him that we're meeting them and we're having their food. So we're at the bar and we're watching them cook right in front of us, which brings me great relief because then I can watch what they're making and what they're putting into it. And they slap a piece of chicken breast onto the grill and I'm all excited. And then they squirt what looks like mayonnaise onto it. And this roller coaster of emotions repeats and repeats. And I, after a week of eating bagels and noodles, am very, very hungry. 
Finally, I see them put down another piece of chicken breast, and right before they squirt the mayonnaise-looking stuff on it, I give them a look that I hope is interpreted as polite desperation, and I say, that's perfect. They throw the pieces of chicken on my plate, and I put it in my mouth, and I bite down, and it's that fatty, grisly part of the chicken, the part I would normally cut off and give to the dog. My mouth still clenched, my eyes filling with tears. I look to my brother Chris, and he says, do you want to go outside? I run out, and I spit the pieces of chicken into the hedges, and I just start crying. I feel terrible if I've made anything resembling a scene in this place that matters so much to my brother. And also, why can't I just flip a switch and like all the food that everybody else seems to like? Also, I am very hungry. Chris had followed me out, and we're not a very physically affectionate family, but he puts his arm around me and says, how about we just get you some scrambled eggs? I nod, spit a few more pieces of chicken into the hedges and go back inside. And I tell you what, when they put that plate of scrambled eggs in front of me, I suddenly became a chopstick expert. Our first story from the mouth off is from Christine Caliphas. She's a memoirist, poet, and essayist, and the organizer of Quiet Corner Poets in Pomfret. She's also the host of My Word at the Vanilla Bean Cafe. Her story was from our April 2015 show. So it's 2004. I'm 35 years old. I recently quit my job to stay home with my three little boys, and I really love them, but I really miss working. I miss getting dressed up. I miss making my own money. I miss delivering anything that isn't a baby. <laughs> and so when I'm at a party recently, and a woman sitting next to me is eating a piece of cake that I baked, and she says, this is really delicious. This homemade cake you made, you could totally do this for a business. And I grab onto that idea with both hands. I call up my advertising department, my cousin Allison, who is <laughs> heavily dialed into the mom network, and I'm a new member. The next day, I get a phone call. It's a woman named Debbie. And I find myself saying yes to everything. Yes to a cake for 50 people. Yes for tomorrow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes to a vanilla cake. And then I ask what I think is a really smart question, a professional question, what real cake bakers ask. Would you like a filling? <laughs> and she says, yes, we would love strawberry filling. And I think... That's fantastic. We can totally do that. <laughs> I hang up the phone and I think, oh, what have I done? <laughs> I don't have any time to think because the party is tomorrow. So I go right to my cabinet and grab the cake flour because that's what real cake bakers do. And I didn't tell her, but I don't make homemade cakes. I make Duncan Hines. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a cake fraud. <laughs> And now I'm really in trouble, but I grab the cake flour and I make a small little cake to see what's going to happen. <laughs> and it comes out like a pancake. So this is a three-layer cake for 50 people. So my backup plan 
is Duncan Hines. <laughs> and this big round cake pan takes three cake mixes. And in case you've never used Duncan Hines butter recipe, it's a stick of butter for each cake mix and three eggs. I need nine cake mixes. So I get started. I, I make up the cakes, and because I only have one of these cake pans, it takes me all night. And, and I have finally three cakes cooling all over my house. There's one in the dining room. There's one in the living room. There's one in the kitchen. And then around 2 o'clock in the morning, I start making the strawberry filling, which I have no idea how to make. I assume because I have like 15 quarts of strawberries, I'm just going to cut them up and throw them in a pan and see what happens. <laughs> and they start to burn, so I add some water. And then I think, you know, maybe sugar? I just kind of dump it in. I don't really measure it or anything. And I just stir it. And I'm really surprised when, you know, it doesn't look half bad. <laughs> it looks okay. And I just, 5 o'clock in the morning, just start spreading it on the layers because I've got to get this done and I don't have time to taste it. So about 6 in the morning, I am, uh, I slept for maybe a half an hour. I'm going to decorate, which is really the only part that I'm reasonably good at. And... <laughs> I get my canned frosting <laughs> and, and just frost it. And, you know, it looks pretty impressive. I, I, I can't believe I'm going to pull this off. And I put little rosebuds all around the top. It's a little baby girl christening. And then I realize this isn't just an emergency cake, but this is a performance cake. Everyone knows that a christening isn't about the baby. It's about the cake. And I'm going to be judged on this. So it better look good. And I remember that I have a silver filigree baby carriage a few inches high that is from my own kids that I'm basically just going to donate to this project because I'm not a professional cake baker and I'm just using stuff from my house. So uh, I put it on top and it looks pretty good. I feel like it's ready to go. I'm, I'm ready to get this in my van. I get it to the car and it's very heavy. It weighs about 50 pounds, and that's probably because it has nine sticks of butter and 27 eggs and like a pound of sugar. But I get it right behind the driver's seat behind uh, in the van and start to make my way to the restaurant. And I'm one of those annoying people on the highway that's got their hazards on and is in the like passing lane. But I just need to get this done. I have frosting in my hair. I haven't slept. I just want to collect my $75, for which I'm totally in the hole. I've made no money on this at all. But I'm going to deliver the cake. So I get, on the, I'm on the highway. I'm about to, I see the restaurant from the exit ramp. And it's a left-hand exit. So as I start to turn the steering wheel, I see with that eye that all mothers have in the back of their heads, watching their children, I can feel the cake sliding toward the passenger door. And I don't think about it. I just grab the cake with my right hand like I would grab one of my toddlers and just hold it there. And I don't think about what I've done. It's just that it's all together and I'm going to get this delivered. So I, I make it to the parking lot and park the car. And I have to remove my hand <laughs> covered in frosting and assess the damage. So I get out and open the passenger door, and it's all in one piece, but it's a mess. It's this filling kind of seeping out the side, and if I had known that strawberry filling was really cake lube, I might have 
I might have thought of a different idea. So I don't have a spatula. I don't have any extra frosting. But I have a credit card. <laughs> so I don't think about where my credit card has been. I don't think about where my fingers have been. I just use the credit card to smooth out the frosting all around the side. And, you know, it's going to have to do. So I make my way inside, and it's just as I suspected. As I enter the restaurant and I see the rickety little table they want me to put this enormous cake on, everyone that's around the baby suddenly leaves and flocks toward me. I'm a cake magnet, and I'm, I just, they part so I can make it to the table, and I put the cake down, and I'm ready to get out of there. And any second, they're going to say, what kind of cake is this? This isn't homemade. And what did you frost it with, your fingers? <laughs> but all they say is, wow. And before I can interpret that, I'm out of there. Especially because I don't think the center is really cooked. So, <laughs> The next day, I get a phone call. It's Debbie. And she says, I just have to say, that cake that you baked, and my heart sinks into my stomach. And she says, it was delicious. And I think, I totally did this. Um, this is an opportunity. She asks me if I can do another cake in a month for a birthday party. And I think, yes. And then I think, no. <laughs> Thank you. I declare if I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake, baked a cake, baked a cake if I knew you That was writer Christine Califas from 2015. She's currently working on her first novel. Next, we've got a story from Carrie Nowak. I'm going to keep this intro short because I want you to hear Carrie Nowak's voice as soon as possible. I'll tell you a little bit more about him later, but his story is from June of 2017. It's late September, 1961. My family and I, consisting of my mother, my father, myself, and seven other brothers, two brothers have already flown the coop and grown up, we live in a log cabin on the edge of the Aroostook River in Caribou, Maine. It's dark outside, and I'm the lucky boy that gets to stand next to the front door. I get to call out and let everybody know that the truck is here. I'm barely tall enough. I'm five and a half years old. I'm standing at that front door, and I'm using my finger to hold the curtain open so I can look out that window and look to my side. But I get to call out, and I'll use the same voice I had then. Mom, the truck's here. <laughs> At that point, then, everybody gathers by the door, and my mother's got Tammy by the hand, and she's got Tucker in her arm. We skedaddle out the door, and we close and shut the door, and I run up to the back of that, uh, that large truck, and it's got a canvas-covered top on it. Make my way over the tailgate and sit on the floor where the kids sit. My brothers will sit there with me, and along the sides of the bed of that truck are a couple of bench seats, and there's already other people in that truck, too. People from all kinds of different walks of life. Some from Nova Scotia, maybe, and some from Quebec. Different accents, different ways of speech, different languages. Maybe a Mi'kmaq Indian here and there, too. 
we're sitting on the floor of that truck, and we were taught, be quiet. And with a house full of ten boys, that's the first lesson any good mother learns to convey to their kids. <laughs> but we would sit there, and we would listen to all these people talk. They would talk adult stuff. We weren't listening to kid stuff. We were listening to adult stuff. And we would learn about language, and we would learn about so many things about what it was like to be an adult. And being number eight in the lineup of ten, I was one of the young boys in the family. I had seven brothers older than myself, and even my twin, who was only 13 minutes older than me, would make fun of the fact that he was older than I. But being one of the younger boys in a family of 10 sons, well, you can't wait to be a bigger boy. But I'm the lucky guy. I'm, I'm inside that truck with all my brothers, and we're happily waiting to go out to the potato fields to do some picking. Now they close the schools down for two weeks each year to allow this to happen. Caribou, Maine is primarily financed by the potato fields. And so it's a big event. It's something that has to take place, and those fields must be emptied. But we're in that truck, and we're riding on a bumpy ride, heading out to the fields. You don't know which field is going to be the one that you're going to be picking potatoes in. All you know is that you've got to get out to those fields, and that's why the trucks pick us up, because you just never know which field is going to be the one for that day. The truck stops, we clamber out of the truck and onto the ground. And you can see the glint of frost as the sun just comes above the horizon. Now this was a particularly lucky year for us though, for my twin and I, because at five and a half now we're big enough to be able to carry that basket full of potatoes and we're strong enough now to be able to carry that down to the end of the row, hoist it over the lip of the barrel and dump its contents directly in. For us, and for many of the families up there, this job would represent the income that would help these people to get through a seven-month winter, with minus 30 sometimes for days at a time. And the money that you earn picking those potatoes would be the money that you would use, and that would make the difference between a lean Christmas and a good Christmas. So you got out there and you worked hard. And at the same time, we never learned that working was a four-letter word. To us, it was something we enjoyed. Matter of fact, uh, we had little toys, like toy rakes and toy shovels that we played with, so we were used to it. But getting out in that field and working with these adults was an adventure unto itself. At 12 o'clock, everybody would take a break, and then you'd get a chance to see and experience all these people talking amongst themselves. Cajun accents, Gaelic accents, people from Nova Scotia, Quebec. But we would work out in those fields, and we would enjoy it. All of us boys would. And I didn't know of anybody that didn't. While we would be picking those potatoes, each and every person out there would be hoping to get the oddball, that potato that had a shape that was unique and different to every other potato out there. And if you found that odd-shaped potato, maybe it looked like a duck or maybe it looked like something else, you might get your name, your face, and the picture of the potato in the paper <laughs> and a $5 prize that would come with it. But then we'd get home, and by the end of that two weeks, we'd muster up the money that we'd earned. The barrels were counted, and now my mother would get a pay envelope, and she would share a portion of that with us boys. After she got her pay envelope and gave us a couple of bucks, I walked over to Dodo's store, which is an iconic general store out in Caribou, still there now. But I'd walk inside that place, and you'd hear the ringing of a little bell attached to the top of the door. And I'd walk up to the counter, and I asked Mr. Dodo, with my face just barely above the counter, 
How much was that wallet up on the left-hand side of the counter? I'd been eyeing it for some time. It's handcrafted, hand-tooled by Micmac Indians, and it had little beads of an Indian in full headdress on the front of it. He told me 50 cents, and I gave him one of my $2 and broke it. And at that point then, I took my wallet and I put my first dollar in it. Now I was a big boy. I wasn't a little boy, I was a big boy. And we would enter adulthood knowing that work wasn't something you run away from. Work is something you smile and go to. It was an important lesson we'd learned that would stay with us all our lives. Thank you very much. Thank you, Carrie Nowak, whose bio reads like this. With his love for the sound of the road passing beneath him and the adventures it would entail, Carrie Nowak would continue the saga he'd known all his life. With nothing more than a map on the floor and a steady gaze, he'd someday find the home that somewhere awaits him. He's in Kentucky right now, but wherever he ends up, I'm so glad he passed through Mark Twain's home on his way. When we get back... I found out through that experiment that liver is the one and only thing that makes me target vomit. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Sweet, sweet potato pie, eat for my joy. Sweet, sweet potato pie, you my special name Sweet, sweet potato pie. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. This hour, we're listening back to some of my favorite stories from the mouth off, a live storytelling show I created and hosted in partnership with the Mark Twain House. It's on hiatus right now because, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Middle, beginning, end, I have no idea. But the theme for today's show is Eat It Up, stories featuring food. Next, we've got Adam Prizio. He's an attorney, writer, and disability rights advocate who lives in Hartford, Connecticut. His story was from May of 2013, just the second mouth off ever. This story does not have a title, but it has a prologue, which took place when I called my mother a few years ago. What's, you know, how, how are you, mom? Not bad. You, not bad. How's work? You know, it was one of these, one of these sort of boring conversations. So what's new with you, mom? And then my mother said, well, the other day, I captured a man, a fugitive from the law, <laughs> with a bowl of soup. <laughs> and she told me this story. And I need to set the stage a little bit before I, before I can tell you the story. My mother is the head librarian at a little library in New Hampshire in a little cute little town in the mountains. And... She lives in, a, in an old drafty farmhouse on top of a hill. And behind the farmhouse, there's a big post and beam barn that sits, it sits on top of the hill. And, and for some reason, I've noticed men in particular like to climb up the top of the barn. There's a cupola. And you can look out and see the white mountains of New Hampshire and the green mountains of Vermont and you know, sort of think about your life and look out over the whole world. And it's, it's very beautiful. And across the dirt road from my mother's house is uh, the, the house that belongs to the artist at the local community, the art teacher at the local community college who keeps chickens in his backyard and who sells the eggs from a brown refrigerator in his driveway. 
which has a change box on top so that you can make change if he's not around. And beside his house, there's the retired colonel of the Air Force who spends all week reloading ammunition and shooting it into a target on the weekend. And down at the bottom of the hill, there's a pig farmer who plays the Almond Brothers on records out his window at night to, to calm the pigs to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> and a little up from the pig farmer, there's the house of a man named Stephen, uh, whose name is, his name is not Stephen, but today we'll call him Stephen. And the facts on Stephen are these. My mother swears that he would never hurt a fly, but nevertheless, Stephen suffered from a, a mental health issue which was treatable by medication and which he was treating with medication except that from time to time he would stop taking his pills and his family would have him committed to an asylum and the doctor would, would treat him and impress upon him how important it was to take his pills and he would acquiesce and go home and take his pills until again such time as he would stop taking his pills and this is sort of the cycle. So one summer evening, uh, my mother is getting ready to close the library and, and the phone rings and it's my sister who's 15 and who was living at home at the time. And my sister says, Mom, the police were just here. Uh, they say Stephen has broken out of the asylum. They think he's nearby. I don't feel safe here, Mom. Would you please come home? And my mother says, of course, I'll come home. I'll close the library a little early. And she drives home. And at the end of our road is the police cruiser. And she pulls up alongside it, and Officer Gilman, who is half of our town's police force, <laughs> rolls down his window. And she says, Officer Gilman. And he says, hello. And he says, so you've heard that Stephen has broken loose. And my mother says, yeah, my, my daughter called me. That's why I'm here. And Officer Gilman says, if you see him, like he's probably around. He may try to go to your house, don't approach him, don't talk to him, don't go near him, because we don't know if he's dangerous. Just call me, just come get me, and I will take care of it. So my mother says, okay. And because Officer Gilman knows my mother, he says, you promise. <laughs> and my mother says, yes, I promise. And she drives home. And, and my mother says, I just got the feeling that God was telling me to make soup. <laughs> And and from my mother's perspective, when, when God is telling you to make soup, why you get out the stock pot and you chop the onions and you put the chicken in and the carrots and the spices and all of this stuff and bring it to a boil. And that's what she did. And she's stirring it and checking on it and she looks out the window and who should be coming across the porch but Stephen, the wanted man. And he's coming to the front door and my mother looks out and, and you and I know that there are a couple of ways this could go and not all of them are good. But what my mother knows is that God told her to make soup and now she knows why. <laughs> so she throws open the door and she says, Stephen, it's so good to see you. Won't you come in? I just finished making soup. And he comes in and she fixes him a bowl of soup and he sits at the table so she starts talking to him, you know, how, how are you? And he says, not good. I just broke out of the asylum. And she says, yeah, what do you, what's your plan? Like, what are you going to do? And he says, I just want to go home. 
And she says, well, I mean, do you think, I think they'll find you if you go home. I mean, that, I don't know that that's going to work. And he says, yeah. He says, well, he says, could I stay here? And she says, no, you, you can't stay here. He says, okay, well, could I stay in the barn? And she says, that I don't think that's a good idea. And he says, well, can I at least have another bowl of soup? <laughs> and she says, okay. And she goes into the kitchen and she's thinking like, do I, I mean, do I make a phone call? If the phone's right there, he'll hear me make the phone call. What, what do I do? And, and so she comes out and she's got the bowl of soup in her hand and she says, you know, Stephen, I've been thinking and you came onto my porch. Like you, you came to me. I didn't go looking for you, but I promised Officer Gilman that if I saw you, I would let him know. Now, promise is a promise. I, I, have to, I have no choice. I've already promised. But if I give you this bowl of soup, do you promise to stay here and wait for him to come? And you'll just, you'll finish your soup and he'll come and he'll take you and everybody, we'll all do the right thing. And he says, well, here's the thing. I hate it when he comes and he arrests me. I hate, you know, he, he yells at me about my rights like I'm a criminal and he bends my arm behind my back and he puts the handcuffs on really tight and I just, it, it makes me feel really bad. And she says, well, I'll tell you what, I'll make him promise that if, if, he find, if he comes in and you're here, he'll be nice to you. He'll take you away nicely and respectfully. But you have to promise to sit here and eat your soup. And he says, okay. So she gives him the bowl of soup. She goes and picks up the phone. And then she thinks, you know, that soup thing worked. I'm going to see how far I can take it. So she hangs up the phone and she gets one of those, those mugs that's sort of like wider on the bottom and narrower at the top that you can like drive with. And she fills it up with, with soup and she drives down to the end of the road, leaving Stephen at, at the table. And she pulls up alongside the police cruiser and she rolls down the window and Officer Gilman rolls down the window. And she says, have you eaten yet? And he says, I have not. <laughs> and she says, well, I made soup and I thought you might want some. So here, I have, I have a cup of soup for you. And he says, oh, that, I'm really hungry. That smells really good. And she starts to reach out to give it to him. And she says, well, actually, hang on. Officer Gilman, I need you to promise me something. <laughs> Thank you. That's my story. That was Adam Prizio from 2013. He's an attorney, writer, and disability rights advocate who lives in Hartford. Next up, Joey Marsacci is the creative mastermind behind Grimm Studios, and he's the co-creator of Curoporium, a new paranormal interactive experience. He's also the co-author of three books. His story is from February of 2016. What am I, chopped liver? That phrase has been with me since I was a child. I had a dream when I was a kid that I wanted to work for Disney, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. But as I grew older, I found out that I wanted to be a Imagineer. Back in the old days, the word Imagineer meant something cool. And those are the people that were the elite designers that moved up from animation and they designed Disneyland and Disney World. And, that's, and the, that term is still used and that's what I wanted to be. I asked my grandmother when I was five, what does that mean, one of my chopped liver? And she said, I don't know, I like liver. And she was a good cook, 
And I was like, then I should try it. She said, yes. And she prepared it like she did old style. And she told stories and they sat in the kitchen and she prepared it and she slid it in front of me. And I happily put the first bite in my mouth. And I found out through that experiment that liver is the one and only thing that makes me target vomit. <laughs> as soon as it hits my palate, no warning or anything. Now, the interesting thing about that is that when that happened, I distinctly remembered all of the things that happened at once, drawn out and in slow motion. And I won't go into the details because you don't want them. But rejection causes those same things, that nervousness and the sweating and the, uh, I'm going to vomit on you. I don't want to, but I'm going to. Your first kiss, your job interviews, all of that. And I, and, I, and I remembered that. That's what that phrase must mean. It's what it feels like to be rejected, to taste liver. Okay, got it. So we're going to fast forward now to me trying to get into the Disney College, California Institute of the Arts. So I knew I had something there. And I worked so hard at that school that I actually had enough credits to graduate somebody with me <laughs> when I graduated. I learned everything I could. I took music, I took, I took theater, I took film. I, I tried to be the best, the very best that I could be. And I found out that at the end of the year, they have a gala. And all the important people from the industry come to this gala and see the students work. And I was like, that's awesome. I'm going to put together a dog and pony show of a theme park ride that I would like to see, that Imagineering would like to see, and they will hire me. And I worked all year, and I put it together. They gave me a room this size. And I had a calliope playing. And I just took over that room. And I had full-scale models. I am working hard. I haven't slept in three days. I kind of look like Doc Brown from Back to the Future. <laughs> Wild-haired. And my friends are all really worried about me because I am getting, I'm, I, I'm in my room. I'm staying in there. I'm finishing everything because I had to do it all by myself. I stayed up for three days, and, I, and the important thing to remember on this is that when you're really working hard on something and you're in college and you're broke, you eat all the time. And this particular three days was a diet of Skittles, Mountain Dew, and Top Ramen. Very little, but enough to keep me going. I knew I had to get everything ready by 10 a.m., on that Friday morning, and I just worked and worked and worked and didn't sleep and ate Skittles and drank Mountain Dew. Paint fumes hit me. I didn't care. I was going to get this thing done. It was about 9.30 or so before the 10 o'clock show was about to go, and I was working on the final model. All I had to do was put these tiny little windows that I had ordered from somewhere that were very expensive into this model, and it would be done. I'm kind of going mad and I'm just chugging Mountain Dew and I'm like, I gotta wake up, I gotta wake up, I, gotta, I, I know they're here and I'm looking everywhere and I step back and I hear no. That's where I put them. But I have to tell you that the only thing I could find to replace those windows were Skittles. <laughs> and they worked. I painted them, stuck them in the model, ran over, they air dried, I put it on the shelf, ready to go. And I turn around, and I see the five people from Imagineering. They showed up, and they were the top people. There they were, staring at all of my art. And right over there is Tim Burton. Spielberg was there. Lucas was there. 
Tim Burton with whatever girlfriend that looks like a dead Johnny Depp is there. <laughs> and he's digging my work too. There's fog, there's music, there's everything, and this room is full of industry people looking at my stuff. And I am exhausted, but I'm excited. So it's adrenaline, and I'm exhausted, and I'm hyped up on Mountain Dew and Skittles, and there are waiters buzzing around with food on trays, like penguins and Mary Poppins, and they're just wandering around, and I'm like, food? grabbing food, and I'm eating food, and I'm talking to the people, and they're everywhere. Don't jump ahead. <laughs> so finally, the Imagineers have gone through. All my friends are keeping an eye on them as they walk around the room, and they look at my stuff, and they come over, and they talk to me in a group right in front of me, and they're, they're complimenting me. They love it. They're asking me, how could we do this? This is too expensive. I'm like, no, you actually have the technology now to do it. I answered all their questions perfectly. I don't remember anything I said, but it was right. <laughs> and as I'm talking, the radio's buzzing around, and I've taken one more hors d'oeuvre as I came off, and they were, they were just about to say, you know, well, we should arrange for you to come down and see the studio. And I was so happy, and I popped the, the bacon-covered shrimp, because I love bacon, into my mouth that I had already eaten. And it wasn't shrimp. And as soon as it touched my palate, <laughs> you've seen The Exorcist, I assume, right? <laughs> so I sprayed all five of them, <laughs> head to toe, three of them women, with vomit. I was horrified. They all ran off, except for the one guy who said, thanks, but no thanks. He actually said that phrase to me. And I realized that I ate liver, and I was appalled. Eventually, I mean, I didn't become an Imagineer, but on my resume, it does say theme park designer. And I have done several theme park attractions over the years. And that very next year when I was working for a company that they worked freelance for Imagineering, I got called in on a very special project. And that project was my project. And it was Mickey Mouse's Toontown. They owned it, technically, because they owned the school. The nice thing was is that five other rides used the technology that I came up with, and they all worked. So I knew I did something right. That was Joey Marsacci from 2016. He runs Grimm Studios and is the co-creator of Curaporium, a new paranormal interactive experience. He lives in Hartford. After the break. He takes the two boys and he stuffs them in a pickle barrel. He locks it up and he waits for them to die. And I'm thinking, this cannot be the story you tell people. Like, this is crazy. One more story from the mouth off. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back.
This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. This hour, we're listening to stories recorded at the Mouth Off, my storytelling show in partnership with the Mark Twain House. The theme of today's show is Eat It Up, stories featuring food. We're closing out the episode with the brilliant, powerful, and hilarious Cynthia Rojas. She's a management consultant with FIO Partners, and she uses storytelling techniques as a tool for employees and employers to facilitate career advancement and growth. Her story was from July of 2019. I love the 80s. You remember those days, right, when your phone was still stuck to a wall and you had to wait until I got home to actually talk to me or leave a message in an answering machine. Those days are gone. So this past January, I was going to Warren, Vermont, and the person who did my travel plans had everything set except once I got out of the Amtrak, how was I going to get from the Amtrak train station to where I was going? And so I was thinking different options, and I had ran it by a group of young people, and so one of them said, well, why don't you Uber? And I said, oh, no, 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 I don't Uber. She said, you know, Uber? I said, well, I don't know who these Uber people are. First of all, I'm from New York. And in New York, you get into a yellow cab. There's like a picture with a license issued by the taxi and limousine company. I trust that this person has been endowed by some process to drive me around. This Uber deal, I have no idea who these people are. They can be serial killers for all I know. I don't Uber. And they're like, well, I don't know what to tell you. So we ended up nowhere and my trip finally arrives. So I'm taking Amtrak for the first time and I'm so excited. Five hours and I'm relaxing and I'm enjoying, I'm reading books, I'm hearing music. And then I hear the conductor say, Warren. And I'm like, yes. And I get out and I am so excited. And I get onto the platform and my excitement is met with shock. The platform is almost pitch black. And there's like one or two lampposts. And I'm thinking, this is crazy. Like I've never been in a place with just one or two lampposts. And I come out of, I step on the platform and I go down the platform, the four steps that take me to the parking lot. And there are nine parking lot spaces. And I realize, where the hell am I? I had assumed that there would be taxi cabs. I wasn't expecting a yellow taxi cab, but I was expecting some taxi cab and there's nothing. But I had gotten the phone number to a taxi company, so I called them and it went a little something like this. Hi, I've just arrived at Warren, Vermont Amtrak train station and I wonder if you can have a car come and get me. And he says, you're in Warren? I said, yeah. And he goes, well, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Sugarbush. It's about a 30 minute drive up north. He goes, well, I'm in Sugarbush. I said, well, that's great because that's where I need to be. So can you come and bring a cab to come get me? And he says, no. He says, I can't get somebody to drive half an hour to then bring you back half an hour. And he hangs up. And I'm thinking, that wasn't nice. I'm standing there. It's the end of January. It's freezing. There is no one in this nine space parking lot. And I'm standing there thinking, what the hell am I going to do? And it occurs to me that this is probably how horror movies begin. (laughs) And I didn't come to Warren, Vermont to die. And as luck would have it, this man comes toward me. And I turn to him. And I'm like, hi. He's like, hi. Are you okay? I'm like, yeah. He goes, is someone going to come get you? And I'm like, yeah. And then I'm like, no. 
And um, I said, I called the cab, but they won't come. Do you happen to have a phone number to a cab company? He says, no. I said, okay. And he just looks at me and look at him. And he's like, so what are you going to do? And I'm like, I guess I'm going to Uber. And he goes, oh, there is no Uber here. I said, what are you, there's no Uber here. Uber is like in the whole world. He goes, not here. And then he leaves. And I'm like, so these young people, they're on to something. So after I had that little banter with them, I downloaded the app. So I take out my phone that I now hold in my hand, thank God, and I press the button. And so Uber has this thing that when it's looking for a car to come get you, this radar thing comes on and it goes like this. And I'm watching it. It's freezing. I want to remind you the end of January, Vermont, six minutes, seven minutes, nothing. And I think, wow. I did not come here to die. This has got to be a joke. And so I'm standing there thinking, what am I going to do? And I do the unimaginable. I take the phone back out and I open the app again, like something different is going to happen. So there goes that radar over and over and three minutes in, bam, I get someone to come pick me up. His name is Michael. And now all I have to do is pray that Michael's not a serial killer and that he's not going to kill me. So lo and behold, four minutes in, Michael comes into the nine space parking lot and he picks me up. I put my luggage in the trunk and I get in the back seat. And Uber also has the ability to help you GPS where you're going, watch, watch it on GPS so that he doesn't get to detour and take you in the backwoods. So I have my phone on my knee and I'm sitting there. And then it occurs to me that in 1987, I was watching Oprah Winfrey. And she had a detective on her show talking to America on how to survive a serial killer. Okay, you saw it? Swear to God, don't go to the second location. But also he said, have them see you as a human being. Talk to them. Let them see you as a daughter, a mother, a sister. So now I'm thinking, oh God, I got to talk to this guy. So I say, Michael, how long you been doing this? He said, four years. I said, really? Because there was a guy who said there was no Uber in Warren. And he says, yeah, I'm like the only Uber. I was like, oh, okay. So why do you do this? And he says, oh, because I work at home alone all day and I come out to meet people. I said, oh, well, what do you do? And he says, I'm a woodcarver. And I think, this can't be happening. And God, don't have any tools in your truck. Like, who does that? Right? So we're driving and I'm like, oh, and so you do this to meet people? And he's like, yeah. And I like to tell stories. I said, that's great, Michael. I'm a storyteller too. So we start telling stories. And then he asks, have you ever heard of the German Christmas pickle? And I'm like, no. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I have no idea where this is going. And so he goes, well, Every Christmas, little German kids are super excited because not only do they get to open their gifts, but the first one to find the pickle inside the Christmas tree gets an extra gift. So um, he goes on to tell me that it's based on a legend where there was these two boys coming home from boarding school, walking through the forest, and it was cold, just like it was that night, and it was snowing. They were tired and hungry, and they come across this inn, and they go into the inn, and they get to rent a room. What they don't know is that the innkeeper is evil and he takes the two boys and he stuffs them in a pickle barrel. He locks it up and he waits for them to die. And I'm thinking, this cannot be the story you tell people. Like, this is crazy. 
there is nothing but woods on the right and left of us. And I'm like, are you kidding me? And he goes, however, what the innkeeper didn't know is that St. Nicholas was coming across town to drop off gifts. And he hears the boys and he opens the lock and he sets them free. And the boys get to go home for the holidays. And the next thing Michael says is, we have arrived. And I look up and he's right. I see the hotel and I'm like, oh my God, I made it. Michael jumps out to get my luggage in the back. And so I realized I forgot to ask him something. So I come out and so I say, Michael, I forgot to ask you, what do you do with the wood carvings? I said, do you sell them? He goes, no, no, no. I give them away. I say, you give them away? And he goes, yeah. And he pulls out this wood carved Santa Claus in the shape of a pickle. And he says, this is for you. And here, and so I thank him, like really thank him for not killing me and for the pickle. And so he thanks me because I give him a really big extra tip because he didn't kill me. And so as I'm walking away, I'm thinking here was one of the scariest nights of my life. And yet I met this great guy and these young people were onto something because back in the day, this would have been very different. So thank God for them. Thank you. That was Cynthia Rojas, recorded last year. She's a management consultant with FIO Partners, and she's also the host of Coffee Time with Masterminds, which you can find on our Facebook page at C.W. Rojas. She lives in East Haven. Audacious is produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford to subscribe and listen back to shows about things like antinatalism, speech disfluencies, psychics, and what it's like to be a world-famous meme visit ctpublic.org slash audacious. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kyone Wolf. And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. And online, use the hashtag audaciouspublic. Thanks for listening. <laughs>